Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York... I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. During the pandemic, when crowds were scary and the world was on its couch, old Hollywood lost ground to its upstart streaming rivals. But the legacy studios have been mounting a comeback. Get ready for a good old-fashioned ratings battle. And recycling has been all the rage for some time, but now it's come for cemetery plots. We visit a famous London graveyard whose inhabitants, if they could, would be worried about new neighbors piling in. First up, though. Somalia is caught in a terrible moment. Last week, the country's president, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, spoke after a deadly terror attack at a hotel in Mogadishu, the country's capital, killed at least 20 people. Terrorism is a perennial problem for Somalia, and the jihadists who control vast swaths of the country have once again struck in the capital. But it's not the only crisis facing the country right now. Although you've got this monsoon flow, there's not much rain forecast now in Somalia or Kenya or Tanzania. In Ethiopia, Republic, there has been a hint of a few showers to the south. In fact, this rain belt moving up into Somalia might be good news for the Horn of Africa. But it's a little bit too little and too late, to be quite honest. And that's more or less it. Brutal weather has meant little to no food is growing. Faltering domestic security, punishing conditions... And global food shortages are now conspiring to push millions to the brink of starvation. Things are pretty bad in Somalia. There's a consensus among experts that Somalia is on the brink of famine. It is already deep in humanitarian crisis. Adrian Blomfield is The Economist East Africa correspondent. More than 7 million people, that's 48% of the population, are already struggling to find food 1.4 million children are acutely or severely malnourished. 800,000 people have been forced to leave their homes because of hunger. So we're looking at a very, very serious situation. And Adrian, how much of the crisis in Somalia is due to the drought? Drought lies essentially at the heart of this crisis. It's not the only cause of the crisis. There are others to it, but... We are seeing what is clearly the most extensive drought in 40 years. And this is why people are so worried. In 2011, Somalia experienced the worst famine of the 21st century globally. That led to 250,000 deaths. And again, that was partly caused by drought. You had three failed rains in a row. This time round, we're seeing four failed rains in a row. Somalia gets 
two lots of rains a year. And what is even more worrying is that the dare rains, which are due to fall between October and December, the forecast for those is looking pretty grim as well. And these droughts are another issue that can at least be associated with climate change, right? Well, I think experts are a little bit cautious about saying that, but that is certainly the feeling. Somalia is drought prone, and it has tended throughout history to suffer bad droughts once every five years. But what we're seeing now is more severe and more extensive droughts. And that is something that is causing concern for people like Christoph Hodder, who is the UN's climate advisor in Somalia. He says that this is the most extensive drought in 40 years and that things are likely to continue in this vein. Now what we're seeing is that, you know, in the last 15 years, at least we had the 2011 one, we had the 2017 one, we've got the 2022 one. And we can also see that the number of flooding. So last year we had quite considerable floods. And so we can see that cycle of disasters and the frequency of disasters happening. So droughts alone don't cause famines. But when you have droughts becoming more extensive and becoming longer, which is what we're seeing at the moment, then that makes the situation worse and exacerbates the issues that already are confronting Somalia. What do you mean by that? What issues are they? So Somalia, you have a situation of drought, and then it's made worse by two factors. One is the domestic factor. Somalia has been in a state of political turmoil since 1991, which is when the central government collapsed following the ouster of Siad Barre. You had decades of civil war, of warlordism and of Islamist insurgency. We still have a situation of weak government and weak governance, and that has a knock-on effect on the economy. So Somalia produces much less of its own food than it used to. And the cause of that is because of a lack of investment in agriculture. And what that has meant is that Somalia is increasingly dependent on imports. Somalia now imports really 80% of its cereals, including most of its staples such as rice, pasta and cooking oil. So that means that Somalia has been left extremely vulnerable to global price rises. So largely, this is down to a, to a really unfortunate interaction then between climactic conditions and bad domestic governance. Yes, essentially, those are the two that come together. And what we've seen worsening the situation in the last decade or so is that the government itself, already weak, doesn't control most of the countryside. Instead, it is the jihadist movement al-Shabaab, which is the richest and most murderous of al-Qaeda's affiliates, has taken possession of most of the country. And certainly there are people who are dying because they are in al-Shabaab territory and can't get to aid agencies who are operating in the towns. It's too dangerous for aid agencies to go out into the countryside. One of the places that has been at the heart of many famines is Baidoa. And I was speaking to a doctor there who's been telling me about the conditions that he's been seeing where he's been treating children whose mothers are bringing them into the hospital from Al-Shabaab territory, and many of them are in an extremely bad way already. Uh, for the last three months, uh, the number of cases for malnutrition increased. The number of cases... Lots of hospitals and lots of aid agencies saying that they're seeing increases of between 50 and 100 percent 
of patients coming in. And that often tends to be because people bring their children into the hospital. Malnutrition is a very common thing, but then they have, he's seen a lot of cases of acute diarrhea and related illnesses. And they're just saying that there is simply no food. The crops have withered, the livestock have died, and they can no longer buy food because there are fewer traders going in. I spoke to one mother who had to make that agonising decision about when to bring her child to hospital. If she came too early and her child was okay, then that would have wasted the little money that she had. And she nearly brought her child in too late. But after several weeks in hospital, her child is now doing okay. And you mentioned that the influence of al-Shabaab is making the usual route of, of international aid much more fraught in this case. One of the big problems in Somalia at the moment is lack of humanitarian access. So the aid agencies cannot get aid to people in al-Shabaab-held territory. And there are many reasons for that. First of all, there is the danger to aid workers. Al-Shabaab in the past has presented aid workers as legitimate targets. But that is not the only issue. If you get aid into al-Shabaab-held territories and then that aid falls into the hands not of the people it's meant to help, but of the jihadists who are terrorising them, that leaves aid agencies potentially criminally vulnerable, or that has been the fear in 2011 under Western counterterrorism legislation. And it potentially means that donors will be wary about giving money. I think there are a lot of people who are wary about potential newspaper headlines if aid goes towards funding international terrorists. Is there anything that can be done to ease the path to getting international aid where it needs to go? So we've got two problems here. One is that in part because of Ukraine, um, aid agencies are not getting enough in the way of donor contributions. And people that we have spoken to, aid workers, have said that they're having to make very difficult decisions in terms of people to turn away and who to help in this situation. But it's not just about the cash. It's also about getting access to people. And this is important because the most vulnerable people tend to be those living in al-Shabaab territories. So, I mean, if America and Britain, for example, were to give firm commitments that no aid agency or no aid worker would face criminal charges because food or money falls into the hands of al-Shabaab, that would be a great help. But ultimately, the feeling among most aid workers, most of those people who study Somalia, is that for the moment, the situation is so dire and there's the risk of hundreds of thousands of people dying that some of these more unpleasant things have to be swallowed in the meantime. And what seems to be that some evils have to be committed, essentially, for the greater good. All right, Adrian, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. Good to talk. 
Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Last week, Warner Brothers Discovery released House of Dragons on their streaming platform. This Game of Thrones spinoff cost more than $150 million to make. It is larger than the throne. But while that may sound like a hefty price tag, it pales in comparison to what has been spent making the rings of power. There was a time when the world was so young. There had not yet been a sunrise. This Lord of the Rings prequel from Amazon has sucked up almost half a billion dollars and will come out this Thursday, September 1st. The near-simultaneous releases will make for an epic ratings battle, part of a longer-running war that pits old Hollywood studios against new streaming upstarts. Each side thinks they have an advantage, but lately, the legacy giants have been gaining ground. During the lockdowns of 2020, we saw that all these new streaming companies were incredibly popular with investors. Everybody was stuck at home, all the cinemas were closed, and so streaming films and TV at home was all that anybody could do, and firms like Netflix did incredibly well. But this year, there's been a big reassessment, and we've seen Netflix, for example, lose 60% of its share value, and other companies are feeling a lot of schadenfreude about its performance. Tom Wainwright is The Economist's tech and media editor. There was an interesting symbolic victory claimed just a few weeks ago by old Hollywood when Disney announced that it had overtaken Netflix in terms of the total number of streaming subscriptions that it has. It has 221, it says now, which is just slightly more than Netflix has. And of course, what you need to generate those numbers is a splashy, expensive product. Have all those extra eyeballs and subscriptions translated into profits for the companies? Well, no. And so far, it's been a ruinously expensive exercise for everybody. People have been throwing money at content and keeping their prices low to try and attract more and more subscribers. But I think that there's been a bit of a reassessment this year and companies are thinking more about the bottom line than they used to be. Disney has said, for instance, that this year it expects to see peak losses on Disney Plus, which is its main streaming service, and that it expects Disney Plus to become profitable in 2024. Warner Brothers Discovery similarly has changed its tune. It's now said that it's going to target profit making instead of subscriber numbers. Its new chief executive actually said that the target was to make a billion dollars in profit by 2025. And as long as they did that, he said he didn't really care how many subscribers they had. What about traditional media? To what extent is that playing into these companies' concerns, especially the legacy media companies? Well, old school media is having a bit of a mini revival. I mean, obviously, during the pandemic, things like cinemas and theme parks were having a terrible time. They were all closed, but they're back now. And it's not quite as it was. The box office is certainly not going to make as much this year as it did in 2019. And we saw actually just the other day, Cineworld has said that it's considering filing for bankruptcy in the United States. So things aren't back to normal. But you've seen examples like Top Gun Maverick, which came out in May, Paramount held that back during the pandemic because they wanted to give it a cinematic run. And that turned out to be the right choice for them. It's taken something like $1.3 billion so far at the box office. So I think a lot of studios are looking at that and thinking, actually, maybe the theatre is still worth something and we don't necessarily want to release everything on streaming 
on the same day. In fact, Warner Brothers has done a big U-turn there. They said last year that they would release all their films on HBO Max on the very same day that they came out in theatres. This year, they're going back to exclusive runs in cinemas. And even things like broadcast TV and cable TV, for which the long-term picture is pretty grim, they still look like relative safe havens of stability at a time when the streaming picture is very, very bumpy. And Tom, where do you see this headed? What's the longer-term view? Well, I mean, the long-term outlook for things like cable and broadcast is not great because it seems like the inevitable shift is that people are going to drop cable and in future watch most, if not all, of their video on the streaming services. The other thing, though, I think that would worry me if I worked at one of these older studios is that the kind of competition that they're engaged in with some of these new tech firms is a very weird kind of unequal competition. You know, I'm particularly thinking of Amazon and Apple. For them, streaming is just a sideline. They don't even need to make money out of it. For Amazon, Prime Video and Lord of the Rings is just a way to try and get people to stay in the Prime bundle. Because if you're in Prime, you end up buying all your stuff on Amazon and that's how they make their money. And something similar is true for Apple. They don't really need to make money out of Apple TV+. Plus. They just want people to stay in the Apple ecosystem and make sure their next phone is an iPhone. So if you're Netflix or if you're Disney or anybody else, really, for whom media is your only business, I think this is a terrifying competition to be in because you're competing against a company that doesn't even need to make money on the business that is your only business. And these companies are getting pretty big. Initially, they were just dabbling, but Amazon this year is expected by Morgan Stanley, an investment bank, to spend something like $16 billion on media content, which is slightly more than Netflix. So these are really, really big operators now. So how are they thinking about it? What is old Hollywood doing to counter this new model? Well, you're going to see a lot more in the way of bundling, I think. Warner Brothers Discovery is itself an example of this. These two companies recently merged and their two services, HBO Max and Discovery, are going to become one service. So you're going to get more bundles like that. Disney is doing something similar in the States. And through that, they're trying to offer better value. They've got amazing libraries. It's very hard to rival the Disney back catalogue and certainly Apple doesn't have anything like that. So I think the studios are using the depth of their library and the ability to offer these bundles as a way of trying to persuade customers that they can offer better value. I think the difficulty there is that when it comes to bundling, some of these new tech firms can offer bundles of their own. And I mean, Amazon Prime is an obvious example of this. You get the video, you get music as well. You get shopping, a whole bunch of different stuff. Apple has a similar bundle called Apple One. And so As we're heading into what looks like a pretty grim economy, I do wonder if kind of mega total media bundles like that are going to appeal to customers who are looking to save money. So the bundling thing will help Hollywood up to a point, but they may find that they're outcompeted on bundling. So as these companies compete with each other with different bundles, what does this all mean for consumers? Well, I think for now, it's pretty great for consumers. You've got all this amazing spending going on. Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones between them are going to cost well over half a billion dollars. And consumers can watch this stuff very cheaply. I think the new focus that we're seeing on making money rather than just growth at any cost is going to mean that some of these deals are a bit less spectacular in future than they have been until now. Disney just announced a fairly steep price increase in Disney+. Plus. Netflix has been increasing its price now. I think some of these bargains are going to be a bit less bargainsome in future. But I think the presence of these competitors like Amazon and Apple 
is going to keep prices down and keep content investment up precisely because these companies don't really need to make money out of their streaming services. And so they can continue to offer them at really very, very discounted rates. So I think for consumers, the outlook is pretty good. You're still going to have plenty of choice. And certainly compared with the old cable bundle, it's a real bargain. All right, Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, John. As is the case in lots of world cities, in London, a perennial topic of discussion is the high cost of houses and flats. But there's another form of property that's surprisingly expensive. I went to Highgate Cemetery this week, which is a wonderful London Victorian urns and ivy overgrown Edgar Allan Poe-ish cemetery. Catherine Nixie is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. And I went there to speak to Ian Dungable, who is the head of the Friends of Highgate Cemetery Trust. So this is the original Mark's grave. And of course, there's now a monument marking that. This is a prime spot in the cemetery, and the grave next door could soon be up for grabs. Because the graves are empty or they could be reused without disturbing the burials in the grave, there's a space here, say, for a North London socialist who's really interested in being buried in close proximity to the person who inspired them. And would you pay more for a desirable site like this? I think um, probably in keeping with the historic ethos of Highgate Cemetery, yes, it's about location, location, location. Grave recycling is now a growing trend in London cemeteries. Something really interesting is happening in London cemeteries. Slightly ghoulish, perhaps, but also fascinating. Plots that have lain untouched for a century or so are starting to be opened up. Fresh inhabitants are starting to be planted, is the word that they use, on top. And a desirable rate is being charged for doing so. To give you an idea, a fresh burial plot in the capital can set you back between £10,000 and £23,000, depending on the postcode. But a heritage grave, as they call these graves that have been recycled, or to put it more bluntly, that already have someone else in them, can be had for thousands of pounds less. So why are London cemeteries choosing to do this now? Highgate is doing it now because this spring, an act of parliament rich in phrases about human remains was passed, allowing it to reuse its graves. But it's actually quite slow off the mark. Other London graveyards have been doing this for a few years. The stipulations for doing this are numerous. So to be reused, a grave's last burial must have been at least 75 years before. You have to give advanced warning by putting up signs in the cemetery, notices in newspapers, and you also have to as you would expect, be pretty careful with the previous inhabitants of the graves. And what happens to them is they are either left where they are, or they're interred deeper in the ground, which they call lift and deepen in the jargon, or they're moved elsewhere, which is called lift and shift. But why would people want this lifting to happen at all? Is it just about the price? Well, there's a massive need for it. I mean, London's living are constantly moaning that there's not enough space for them in the city, but it's actually much worse for London's dead. A shortage of grave space is a nationwide problem in Britain, but it's particularly acute in the capital. There was an audit in 2011 that was done that found that although some London boroughs had enough capacity for 20 more years of burials, others were already completely full. Well, why not just make more cemeteries? 
people have tried that. So large suburban cemeteries have been built. And the other obvious solution to this problem is to cremate people. And that's been championed successfully. 78% of Britons now choose this option. But the suburban cemeteries are filling up and even they aren't perfect because you don't want to have to take three buses to go and visit your dear departed. And the problem with cremation is that many have profound objections to cremation. So for now, the adage reuse, reduce and recycle is applying not just for the living. Is this a new idea? Not at all. Grave reuse has a long and grand tradition in London. The city is well known for having been built on bones. It's part metropolis, part necropolis. And certainly few British bodies have rested in as much peace as sentimental grave inscriptions would lead you to think. So for centuries, the thing you have to understand about graves is that they're not so much freehold as leasehold properties. You're in them for a few years and then you get turfed out. And it's probably better to think of churchyards less as elegiac dormitories for the dead because if they had been, then they would have had to have been a lot bigger, than as a kind of subterranean bone broth that was occasionally stirred and then garnished with gravestones. So you have wonderful descriptions of Victorian gravediggers promising to just shuffle bodies along a bit. When they put their spades into the ground, they less put them into virgin soil than cut through body parts. And at funerals, soil had to be propped up with boards so that the mourners didn't have their feet on decomposing body parts. I mean, they were fantastically revolting Victorian graveyards in London. So what happened? How did things change? There was a series of crises, notably cholera, that led everyone to think that having body parts openly rotting in the city wasn't a good idea. And there was a change in the law in 1832, and that was designed to prevent cemetery overcrowding. And then that led to the creation of the famous Magnificent Seven private cemeteries that were built further away from the centre of the city and with enough space to put everyone in. But now, because London has just totally run out of space, they are having to go back to these perfectly, meticulously numbered plots and start to open them up again. And as soon as next year, perhaps, some Highgate graves will start to be reused. And they are going to be charged a cheaper rate for doing so. Marx, in his Communist Manifesto, said that the bourgeoisie produces its own grave diggers. So you can imagine that to have them produce not only their own grave diggers, but also their own grave marketers and grave recyclers is enough to have poor old Marx turning in his grave. But I spoke to Mr. Dungavel, and he promised me that graves of historical significance, such as Marx, are not going to be disturbed. Thanks very much for joining us, Catherine. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. 
Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.